The Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 10 Earth is an Ancient Place. The prison has quickly filled the boat. The zones secured the doors and hatches. Air pressures were building beneath the boat. It rose above the water and very slowly it pulled away from the pier. The settling sun was coming into view, creating a prism, a prism of colors through the glass. Savad looked up toward the prison house above the cliff, above the cliffs as the boat was maneuvered around the island. Increasing in speed, they moved out into the open sea, and ever so slowly, the pit island and city behind blended into the darkening horizon. At least he would be out of the pit, but he had his misgivings, however, whether that was really a blessing. Dawn had broken over the basin. People walked along the dirt roads toward their production jobs. Any other form of transportation was forbidden. They seemed, for the most part, content to be walking. Even though there had been trouble the night before, they were remarkably conditioned to their lifestyle, moving like thousands of ants toward their daily routines. Several men had just walked under a high white aqueduct. A group of men armed with tiny weapons waited for them to get out of sight. Then they rushed up the side support toward the top. They knew what they were after. Harry McGee sat against the glass tube that covered the water system. He had been there all night, sleeping on and off, as he stared in silence across the basin. All around, far in the distance, the prodigious mountain peaks hemmed in the basin like prison walls. And although it was somewhat hazy, he could see the countless thousands of huts, large stone monoliths amidst the sweeping agricultural fields, and of course the maze of electrical wires strung at varying levels from tower to tower above the basin. But it was his extreme melancholia, rather than his curiosity about his new surroundings, that kept his mind in a drug-like trance. The men climbed to the top of the supports and he saw them sitting along the aqueduct. He probably heard their footsteps, but didn't move. They moved into the sunlight, casting shadows on the white concrete. You are McGee, said one of the men as he stepped forward. McGee turned his head slowly and looked up at them. His eyes were in turmoil, just the outer edge of what was raging inside him. I'm McGee. You come here to arrest me or kill me? Wait right here, said the man as he moved back and signaled another group of men below. Bring him below, outed the same man. They lifted McGee to his feet and forced him back along the aqueduct. The men were obviously concerned for his safety, checking all around the area for zones. As they scurried down the support, they were joined by other men, and McGee was escorted into one of the side roads. The daylight only enhanced the deplorable conditions. To his shock, he saw barefooted children, partially clothed and even with their bellies protruding. Others had untreated sores and blisters. Everything was so dirty, rusted, and congested. They moved away from the smell of this poverty and up the hillside to the main road. Conditions were better along the hill. They moved over the rusted pipes to a side roadway, and McGee was brought down to a one-story brown hut. We will be right outside, he said, said the man as they left. McGee looked around. It was a simple wooden table in the center of a white room. The window castings were wide open, and the floor was tamped down with dirt. There was an old gray double sink across the room, next to a pointed white refrigerator box, and all the supplies in bright-colored containers were kept along the overhead shelves. I didn't think you'd be too difficult to find, said Aaron as he emerged from the bedroom. 
He had a small green bandage on the right side of his head. Aaron, I didn't think you'd remember. I don't forget when someone risks his own life to save my life, he said as he moved over to McGee. I am most grateful, my friend. And I'm glad to see that gratitude still exists, even in everything else that's fallen by the wayside in this place. I've noticed that about you, McGee. Even in my weakened condition last night, you talk with strange references. You mention old words, doctors, hospitals, and you don't have an identity strip. From the looks of your wrists, he said as he turned it over, you never had one. Who are you? A zone talker? Look, at this point, I don't care who you think I am. My whole life has fallen apart. Everything I had is gone. So go ahead and make your accusations. You talk as if this were some foreign place to you, smiled Aaron as he went over to the preservation box. He opened the door and pulled out two yellow plastic bottles. All right, this place is totally foreign to me. I am not a zone talker. I don't know how I got here. I was dying in the hot desert sun. I fell to the sands, and the next thing I remember, I was here. Well, that is very odd, smiled Aaron compassionately. Perhaps some tingler will relax you. I've been saving these bottles, he said as he handed one of the bottles to McGee. I will give every consideration to your story. McGee sniffed the liquid. This is beer, he said with a slight smile. Another old word. I don't understand you, McGee. Are you out of your sector? Out of my sector? said McGee as he gasped. Then he drank some of the liquid. I'm not only out of my sector, I have left my planet. Planet, planet in the sky, he smiled. Then you know about planets. Planets orbit stars, as we orbit our star, the second sun, asked McGee. The second sun, what is this? What is this, a colonized planet? Why don't you just tell me what happened to you or what you think happened to you? Didn't happen to me. He said as he looked him, as he looked Aaron right in the eye. I know what happened to me. I left Earth on a spaceship. Earth? Yes, Earth. I was brought through a distortion in space, landed in the desert. I lost all my friends. I was dying myself as I told you, delirious in the sands. Then in an instant I'm standing on the top of the locust buildings during that riot. You figure it out, Aaron. I'm wondering if this isn't some illusion or dream. I just don't know. I don't mean to doubt you, McGee, but the Earth is also a very old word, an old place. The place where we all come from originally so long ago. But we live within the basin now. Space travel is something of the past. We are all trapped within the confines of the basin. How can you be any different? He asked, studying McGee's reactions. You are not aware of this place, are you? No, I have no idea, he said, drinking some more of the tingler. What this place is, those damn robot zones in charge of all these people. If this isn't a dream, you tell me. You tell me how this place evolved. Aaron paused for a minute, drinking from the bottle as he moved toward the window. He had never been asked such a question. His first inclination was to believe McGee was mad. Yet this was the man who had saved his life the night before. McGee, I know of no easy answer to the questions you ask. I only know we are all descended from Earthers. That's all I know. I'm sorry. 
McGee had tears in his eyes as he set down the tingler and walked toward the doorway. Below him on the hillside, he could see the deprivation. You know, he said with a lump in his throat, I allowed my life to go on day after day with the same goals, the same lifestyle. I never saw anything but money. I had so much, and the more I acquired, the more I wasn't satisfied. The more I wanted, the harder I worked. Those children, I saw the children down there. They were starving, and others were sick with disease. The insurgency is trying to change all that, McGee. We want Basin people to be able to control the distribution of our needs. Food, supplies, medical supplies. I know the zones seem to control everything. Just what are they? They speak English. Oh, another old word. Yes, they speak the language. They have never had to worry about food or supplies. Their power sources last for 60 years. And their skins are virtually impenetrable. Unless you jump on them, he smiled broadly. McGee, although very depressed, finally evidenced a grin. They sparked when I jumped on them. Are they robots? The Zomes are a combination, genetic and electronic. They have feelings just like you or me. I guess their basic role is to implement the decisions of the Dominion. The Dominion is the existing order. I imagine you could say that, he said as he smiled. Excuse me for smiling, McGee, but I've never heard questions like this. I mean, I've never met a man who doesn't know all this. Aaron, I'm as sane as you are. I don't know how much that means, but my family strongly disapproves of my insurgency activities. In any event, I don't understand this place. How can the Zomes be in control of humans? They receive their orders from the Predicators. Oh, oh, asked McGee, and what are they, some alien race? No, McGee, they are quite human. Three Predicators rule the basin through this through Zome power, answered Aaron. All right, dictators, I understand the concept, but how did the humans get here? Ah, the age-old question, he smiled. I would only guess that the predicators know the answer to that question. So many thousands of years have passed. It's just too long ago to find answers. Thousands of years? Said McGee as he viewed it all in perspective. How many thousand years? Sorry, McGee, I, I don't know. Don't you have any records? History? It's forbidden to keep records of what has happened. Oh, we have records hidden from the past 50 years, but everything else has been confiscated at one time or another. According to the predicators, the goal of all production, the goal of all production workers is simply to produce. Well, obviously they're failing in that respect. Don't the zones see all of this? I understand what you're saying, said Aaron as he looked across the vast fields below. But I know every sector produces so much, people work hard. Then why are people starving? Why are you all living without so many basic things? He asked as he looked down at the, the gray monolithic buildings dispersed at random around the basin. What are they? What are those gray buildings? Depends. Mostly factories divided up inside. I work on the fifth floor of that block in the fields. Blocks? I guess that's a very good word, he said, looking at Aaron. You have no means of transportation. I mean, how do goods travel around the basin? Ah, above ground locomotion is out of water. Our food and supplies are moved by the subports. Subports? 
asked McGee. Some underground transportation system? Exactly. There are terminals all around the basin. They lead deep under the surface. It's out of order to move down there. I know that some kind of energy system, bright yellow light, moves things from place to place. Let me get this straight. Three predicators, all human, have a force of zone machines. The zones enforce all decisions that keep people within the sectors of the basin. Over 50 sectors. That must mean millions of people. But the basin must have its limits. I've seen the mountains. Why not just escape? Many have tried. They never return. <clears throat> well, I can see why. I wouldn't want to come back here either, answered McGee. No, they have no choice. There is a wall around the basin with zones stationed every few hundred feet. Below is a landfill. You must wonder how we get our power here. Nuclear? Under the surface, the waste is dumped from the wall, and the only other way out is the ocean. But there are fields out there. It is a slow and painful death. Can't you get over that landfill? asked McGee. The radiation is too intense, so fly over them. Any air vehicle would be detected by the zones, then shot down by zoomers. I've seen it happen. People have tried and tried a hundred different ways. Escape is impossible. We are here, and we have to adjust to life accordingly. Let me ask you this. How did the predicators gain power? I don't know. I want to talk to them, said McGee. Aaron smiled. McGee, you, you can't just talk to the predicators. They rarely make appearances in the basin. We see them at gatherings or on the overhead screens. I'm sure there will be talk after what has happened. This isn't the only sector with problems. You're all trapped then, replied McGee as he thought. We're all trapped. Yes, McGee, we're all trapped in the basin but not within the system. Maybe we can change the way things are. Kellogg, that lunatic was right, mumbled McGee as Aaron took some bread out of the cabinet below. What did you say, McGee? I was just thinking back. He thought about all the warnings about controlling space. It couldn't just be that simple. This was a strange and foreign place. Yet there were human beings in the basin. He could not help wondering if Kellogg might not have been right after all. Kellogg was alone now and physically locked inside the pit prison house. Most of the prisoners had found their sleeping places in the darkened room. Kellogg, however, stood in front of the long window slit, staring across the water. The blue glowing architecture cast a shimmering light across the bay, and the ever-moving shapes and forms allowed the general's mind to wander. Savard's sudden departure had left the normally stoic general in a severe state of depression. The doctor had been his only link to a former life on Earth, and even though he knew nothing about the XB experiments, he could only envision the worst possible scenario. He knew he'd never see Savard again, and he was violently upset about being in the pit. At any time, in his present state of mind, he was willing and ready to attempt an escape or die trying. Just killing one of the zones would be worth it, but such actions were mere fantasies. Hours passed and he stared at the bay waters, his mind blank. There was a bright light around the ceiling doors. It reminded him of when he was a child alone at night in his bedroom, gazing into the light from the outside adult world. And now he was just as powerless as the little child, and he squinted as the doors opened wide, waking up the prisoners. 
a white zone leader surrounded by his red zones, move down the rampway as the prisoners grumble. Everyone will stay back or be vaporized, he said loudly as he looked around. Where is the prisoner named Kellogg? Kellogg was very hesitant to open his mouth. Would he be plucked out of the pit only to be sent toward the XB regimentation? Or possibly tortured and killed? He realized, however, that he had little choice. They would find him sooner or later. I am Kellogg, he said, stepping from the window. You have been summoned, said the zone commander. Summoned for what? He asked as he walked toward them. The XP? We will answer no questions. You have been summoned. You will come with us, he said, motioning toward the ramp. Kellogg looked at the red zones. All their weapons were trained directly on him. He smiled with a sarcastic look, walking up the ramp. Then they all disappeared into the light. The ramp retracted and the room was dark once more. In no time at all, the general, however, was brought to a zoomer. He was lifted high above the glowing pits in the prison house. They were all silent, refusing to discuss anything with him as they crossed high above the bay. The blinking red lights of the zoomer disappeared into the twisted blue matrix. The general had most definitely been summoned. Savard had been sleeping for some time. The airboat, jammed with prisoners, skimmed across the ocean waters. Night had brought cloudiness and the seas were growing choppy. Lightning riddled the distant, dark morning clouds. As they moved forward, rain pelted the boat. The outside of Savard's cubicle was covered with water beads. Now, as he turned from the glass, he saw Raymond across the way, sitting in his own cubicle, staring at him with a silly grin upon his face. Then he began to speak. The sound of the boat, however, stifled anything Raymond had to say. Savard waved at him, and the demented man waved back very dramatically. But the intensifying storm captured the doctor's attention. He could see the zones pacing up the front of the ship as they checked their instruments. Charts had the storm in front of us and lacking this intensity, said one of the red zones. He looked down at a brightly colored sweeping readout screen. The planet alignment has affected the storm. It has formed a loop around us. This boat could easily survive a simple storm. Yes, a simple storm, Commander. I've never seen anything like it. Moisture is being pulled upward like steam out of a kettle. They won't like it, but we'll just have to turn around. There is no turning around from the storm, Commander. It will overtake us. Then we will have to pass through it, he said, looking down at the screens. Instantaneously, locking devices snapped over the prisoners' laps. Savad could not help think of the transport pushing through the distortion. The lower lights were on now, and the outside clouds almost completely darkened the area. The boat rocked steadily. The smooth, cushioned ride was now gone. The doctor's head slammed against the top of the cubicle several times. Strangely, amidst the edge of disaster, Raymond was still smiling, occasionally looking at him. But Savad was in no mood to wave at Raymond, nor even smile. He was ready to face death. After all he'd been through, it seemed so ludicrous to drown in some alien ocean in deep space. The strain on the engines was severe, and the boat was failing. It hit the water like a heavy weight, pushing for several seconds, and then buoyed upward. Not only tons of salty water filled the cabin, but the boat was now subject to the whims of the water currents. It was tossed and turned, and the power lights went out. 
Savad's conscious image was that of Raymond smiling as if he were on a pleasure cruise in bright sunshine. The craft broke apart like an exploding bomb. Cold waters swarmed over their bodies and consumed the boat's structure, leaving only a scattered amount of debris obscured by the overwhelming surf and darkness that pervaded the area. When communication was lost, the Zomes sent several Zoomers out to sea. Visual sightings were almost impossible now as they tried to fly over the storm until it cleared. And when the sun finally broke through the oceans below, portions of the boat were located over a vast area. The red planet hung like death itself over the water. Transportation to the XB regimentation had ended in disaster. There was always more human guinea pigs trapped within the pit, ready to be taken away. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ramdamas Kingdom, produced by Fitton Theater of the Words.